we give him worship this evening. And we start a brand new book, and we are uh, in the book of First Peter. And this is a, a very doctrinal book, but very practical. And uh, it definitely embraces all of the above. And by the way, we are really thankful to have Barb with us here a week after coming out of the hospital. Exactly a week. Here she is and comes comes riding in just like there's no problem at all. <laughs> all for the glory of God, right? <laughs> you better not be doing that yet. <laughs> I know uh, you're going to be doing the next marathon. It's probably next week or something, right? <laughs> anyway, quite a blessing. We see how the Lord works in some uh, great ways. So we very much uh, thankful for you, Barb. I think you all can be very God is good. Well, when we deal with uh, Peter, we deal with a lot of reality here. Um, things that were happening then and they could, they're happening all throughout the world and uh, can be happening here and even in our country and our little area where we're from. And when you think of Peter, you have to think about the same time that there was an emperor of the Roman Empire by the name of Nero. And he said, wait a minute, I thought we were done with history. Here we go again with Nero, right? <laughs> we were into early church history. So tying that all in to seeing what was happening back there, Nero watched Rome burn. Uh, a lot of questions about who really started the fire. Uh, he blamed it on the Christians. But um, some say because of that uh, city, it was really all everything was made of wood and it would catch fire on one side of the street and it would catch on the other side the wind blowing and, and all those wooden buildings they just uh, once they caught it just went and went pretty quick and of course when the fires were about ready to go out then somebody would make sure that they started again so um, some say that uh, Nero wanted that city burnt so he could build again and he took a really a, an amazing kind of uh, venture and just looking out across the city, looking up above it and looking at the flames and just kind of enjoying the scenery. <laughs> and uh, he would like to have uh, a new city, but it built uh, all the famous buildings that were there from the, that originality there that they had, uh, they were, most of them were burnt. Um, anyway, we know what he did. He blamed it on the Christians. And the Christians weren't well-liked anyway for a lot of reasons. Mainly, they didn't believe in all the gods of the uh, Roman Empire. They only believed in one. And that kind of made them like atheists. So Nero started a persecution. And he started a, a huge persecution of the church. During that time that Peter is writing this, um, suffering is getting ready to really take off. It's already happening to a degree. And as we continue to, to look in Peter, we'll see that they had uh, quite the test of their faith as um, they are living not in Rome, 
but as we see, it's addressed to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, uh, what's called modern Turkey today. It had reached all the way out there now, that kind of persecution. And so it was really starting to uh, take effect. People uh, in Rome, of course, had been burned alive. They were tortured. They were thrown to wild animals, uh, wrapped up in animal skins, and then thrown uh, to the animals and whatever. But uh, there was a, a quote, and it's like, if Jesus Christ is worth living for, He is worth dying for. And many Christians uh, certainly did that. But this persecution that started in Rome, it had spread out, spread into the places where Peter's writing. Um, it began to affect Christians in a, a real way. And Peter calls them aliens. He calls them strangers. Uh, their lives are affected. And so, um, as Peter was inspired to write this letter to them, this little epistle, we will notice that um, he's making... Um, uh, an inspiration. For, uh, he's getting a. I, I knew that was coming. I felt that. Literally. So, and, sorry about that. Uh, somebody doesn't know me. It's probably. What, voting is over, isn't it? Is that, election's done? Okay. Somebody wants me. Okay. Really? <laughs> Okay, now, we... <laughs> okay, um, Peter calls them aliens and strangers, um, right? And so he's writing to these believers who are aliens, who are strangers, they're foreigners, they're in a hostile culture. And that's what Peter is trying to say in this epistle, in uh, this chapter especially. I think it's wonderful that it's Peter who is saying this. Um, I, I think it, it's tremendous because if you remember... If you take this back uh, to the time that Jesus was here, he uh, had let the Savior down and that he had denied him, right? We know about that. Uh, but that was in the past. And before too long, he himself will be taken outside the city of Rome and crucified upside down uh, for his Savior. Uh, so... Uh, Peter had changed drastically since uh, then. And if you want to see a little bit of, uh, of uh, the purpose or the, some of the theme of it anyway, if you look in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So we'll move on to chapter 2, look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. So they're slandering as evildoers. You know, the, the Gentiles, but you keep your witness uh, excellent, right? Um, chapter 3, verse 13. So there was some vocal persecution going on. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. 
And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And then you go to chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. In chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So, um, one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ tells them about some of the sufferings that either you know they might be going through very soon. Maybe some of them are having that happen now. But um, that was definitely um, uh, a push as he wrote this epistle. I think with all that, knowing what this is about, we realize that Peter is going to tell them how to live victoriously in the midst of all this hostility. Um, a lot of the people are going to hate them. Um, and he's going to tell them there's no reason to lose hope. There's no reason to be bitter. Uh, realize who your Savior is. He is the Savior. And you can look forward to the second coming. So he, he will continue to mention that, keep talking about the, this hope that we have. And uh, there's a reason for all what is happening. Uh, and it's not, even though it may seem strange, it's really not strange. This is part of God's plan. So the suffering need to set their minds on the return of Christ. And look how often he does this. Chapter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his uh, revealing, him coming back a second time. Um, that's one thing he wants to ever have that before them in their minds. Whatever's going on here, just remember, this is where it's going. Look in verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's the culmination of it all. Have been saved. Are being saved. Will be saved, right? Um, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling, the very revealing of Him when He comes back. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. So as we're going through different things, you always keep your eye on the end of the race, right? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one authority. What, what did I say? Chapter 2, verse 13. Verse uh, 12. Uh huh. Thank you. Right at the end of twelve, right? Yeah, I missed it. Thank you. Yeah, they're talking about glorifying God in the what? The day of visitation. Christ coming back. Um, chapter four, verse thirteen. But the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So you also, at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation.
So, and then chapter 5, verse 1, there again, some of those same verses that we read about the suffering, then right along with it, in the same verse, it's either in the same verse or maybe the next verse, it talks about the glory of God. It talks about the second coming. So that keeps things in perspective, doesn't it? When we think about how things are here, and of course Paul says it's a momentary light affliction, and then he talks about the glory of God that is to come. So what we're here, and I, uh, just talking with uh, Zach earlier, he's uh, talking about going back within the last year. You go back to, to, to Anna, and you think about all the things that they were wondering what's going on here, you know, and things have developed. And it's just like, isn't it amazing how sometimes... You don't necessarily forget entirely, but a lot of those things, the details are kind of hazy. And that's just within a short amount of time. And I have to think, I wonder how hazy all this is, that sometimes the real struggles that we go through here, how hazy it's really going to be when we uh, are revealed with the the Son of God. (laughs) These things really are not going to be that important anymore, are they? We'll see something much more important that they're here to uh, help us get there. It's part of the deal, isn't it? So as this uh, opening chapter unfolds, just in the first chapter, you start thinking about some positive things. Not only the Lord's second coming, as we just mentioned, but even right now what you can think about. This, I mean, this is a, a very much application here. This is how you prepare when there are difficult things that are ahead or or remind us. For one thing, he says we're chosen by God. Another thing in chapter 1, he says we have a living hope. A living hope. He says we have an uh, indestructible inheritance, undefiled. And in chapter 1, he talks about the joy. And then he also talks about the salvation. Now, those are upbeat things, aren't they? Even though he's saying, okay, here's the reality of what's happening here, but keep your eyes on Christ all the way to the end when He comes back, but at the same time, here's what you have even now. And, uh, and he starts immediately with it. I mean, right off the bat in the, in the first verse, he uses a, a really heavy word to comfort these people before he starts telling them uh, some... Harder stuff, uh, but this this is deep. This is deep. Um, there's a guy by the name of Archbishop Layton of Glasgow, and he wrote quite a uh, commentary on First Peter, very uh, definitive. Three terms that he uses that he sees throughout Peter that really expresses uh, what Peter's trying to put forth is faith, obedience in that faith, and patience. Faith, obedience, patience. That's the Christian life, isn't it? We just keep enduring. And it's because of Him and His power that He gives us that we can endure all this. Sometimes we just like to just give up. But um, so if we, if, you know, He's given us faith, He gives us the, the, the power, the ability to obey by the Holy Spirit. And also then we take the fruit of the Spirit, patience, and, and we just live this life out. So that's why Peter is so um, applicable to all of us today. Uh, doctrines in this book, I always look for well, what kind of doctrines does it have? Well, this one has a tremendous amount. 
It's your little book. Persecution. The doctrine of persecution. Can we say that? <laughs> Foreknowledge. Wow, that's deep. Election. Blood of Christ. The inheritance. Mm. True faith. We mentioned the second coming. The new birth. The milk of the Word of God. Spiritual growth. What spiritual growth really is in being a Christian. How about the priesthood of the believer? How we respond to the government? Marriage? Defending the faith? Doctrine of baptism? Humility? Anxiety? <laughs> he, he just covers all... That's just a few of them. <laughs> and, and in five chapters, we, we get this covered. Now, this was the guy that um, is considered to be the apostle here. Uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We see it right there in the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And I couldn't get past those two verses. So there's no way that we can get out. There's just too much stuff here. He starts right in the first verse banging away with tremendous hope for these uh, people that he's writing to, these aliens. And, and he, he starts off with himself, his name, Peter. And, and uh, this apostle, he has the authority and quite the dignity that is given him as he was selected by Jesus himself. Personally, Jesus selected him in person to have a unique responsibility in the ministry that he had. A tremendous responsibility. And we'll remember some of the things that he did in a negative way. We know there are a lot of positive things about him. He, you know, he has really... Uh, there's a lot of things there that need to be developed when Jesus meets Peter. Well, that's kind of the way it is with us, isn't it? <laughs> we just need to be developed. Well, God's good at that. That's what He's in the business of. That's what He does. That's what He did to Peter. Peter is so different than the way he was when he first met Jesus. He has the same, those same kind of qualities, but with the Holy Spirit filling him, what a change. And he continued to change. He is the most mentioned figure in the New Testament besides Jesus Christ. I think that is significant. I'm tempted to just say, okay, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, let's move on. But let's just look at Peter just for a moment just to see what, what Christ did with him. Now, there are four lists of the twelve apostles. And at the head of every list, every time you see a list, guess who is the very first name mentioned? Peter. Uh, matter of fact, you usually see Peter, James, and John, right? Those are the three inner circle, but usually there's like four in one group, four in another, and four in another. It's kind of like that. I um, don't know if that's exactly the way the setup is, but um, Peter, James, Peter, James, and John, and then Andrew. Remember him? Andrew is the one that brought Peter to Jesus. But you don't hear so much about Andrew as you do Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter 
saw some amazing things. And uh, matter of fact, he experienced more than any of the other apostles. But um, he was their leader. He was the leader of the apostles in that sense. You, you see, um, the Lord spoke more often to Peter, at least recorded here, than any of the other disciples. Sometimes He spoke to him in praise of him, encouragement. And sometimes He is speaking to him in blame. <laughs> uh, no disciple was so pointedly and directly reproved by the Lord as much as Peter was. And no disciple ever ventured to reprove his Lord as much as Peter did. Uh, no disciple ever uh, confessed and outspokenly acknowledged and encouraged the Lord as much as Peter did. And no one ever intruded and interfered and tempted the Lord as much as Peter did. <laughs> Our Lord spoke, spoke all sorts of words of approval and praise and blessing to Peter and the like to which He had never did to other people as much as He did. But nobody else took as much harsh, I guess you could say, things to say that were from the Lord to Peter too. Um, except for Judas. Uh, but there are reasons for all this. Uh, if you take him as an apostle, that means he's one who's sent. He was sent from Jesus. He's taking a message out. They had seen him. And, of course, apostles had seen not only Christ and been with him, but another requirement was that they had seen the risen Lord. Um, they knew Him. They were personally called by Him. They were personally commissioned by Him in person. And they were sent out to preach. And there's where your apostles are. Now we're all sent to do that. So we're all, in one sense, apostoles, apostles, but not in this sense that we have here, this official sense in the role that they play. Uh, nobody liked them. They were the first generation direct apostles of Christ and they were sent by Him personally. If you look in Matthew chapter 10, first four verses, you get a, one of the lists there. Matthew 10, start at verse 1. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What kind of power? Wow. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So, we have um, a list there. And we see that they were summoned, they were called by Jesus. These were ones who walked with Him those, those three and a half years. Now you look in Ephesians 2.20 as Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians and he's talking about the church being founded on Christ and of course the very building is built on a foundation of the apostles. Verse 20, God's household in 19, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. 
So the apostles were the foundation. And of course, they were the ones given the Word of God. They were inspired uh, to write books. Um, of course, Peter writing First and Second Peter. We study this First Peter here. Uh, if you're still in Ephesus or in Ephesians, I mean, if you look in chapter three, verse five. Uh, other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It's, uh, the re- revelation, this this mystery, uh, mystery uh, of the church, uh, the mystery of Gentiles coming into the church. Uh, it was something that they are going to reveal and it was revealed by God Himself through the Holy Spirit as they bring that forth. That's another that's a thing that the apostles did. They of course they, they wrote scripture and brought forth truth from God directly. Second Corinthians chapter twelve gives another mark of apostles. Good to review a little bit about what apostles are because as we set forth on this journey through Peter, we actually get to read a letter from an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 11, and 12. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. That Paul is having to defend himself here. He is an apostle, and some were saying he was a false apostle. He really wasn't one. And he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And so apostles proved who they were by doing some of the same things that Jesus had done. Signs, wonders, miracles. That's what they did. They, of course, they, they spoke with the power um, that, that Christ had as they were inspired. Even though they are just mere men, God did use them in a huge way. Then we turn to Revelation 21 and we see quite the reward as these apostles to be remembered and how they were uh, how they were used by God. 21 verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So, that's a pretty big deal. I <laughs> whatever all that means, uh, that means that they're held in high esteem. God and using them. But God used raw material. He started with a piece of clay. <laughs> and, um, of course, one of these days, uh, everybody in the church will finally reach that point where He's intended for us to be in glorification. Now, Peter was not always named Peter or Petros or Rock. His name was Simon. And even after Simon's been renamed, most of the time, you don't see his name being called Peter. It's usually Simon. And I think when you usually see the word Simon, it's kind of an earthly identification because it's usually when Simon has been sinful. When he acts like his old self, um, 
usually you'll see that Jesus will, will say that. And remember when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, get behind me. Or Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Um, Simon, Simon, you're succumbing to Satan. Um, so there's a kind of an interesting situation there with a, with a new name. But there at the same time, Peter had made a, a great confession of God. You know, and and um, he says, "You are Petros. You're a you're a smaller rock. There's a there's a bigger rock, and it's uh, some say the confession or or Christ Himself. But anyway, whatever as the church is being built on, he's saying your confession is uh, is right on. Yes, thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. So Simon said that, and all of a sudden he's called Peter there." <laughs> Petras. Uh, he was a fisherman. He lived in Caesarea. That's where Jesus had his headquarters. Jesus hung out with Peter a lot. Stayed around that area. There were others from there. He was married also. Peter was. And we see him in ministry, I think in 1 Corinthians 9, somewhere around there. We see him um, bringing his wife along with him as that was... What Paul said, anybody that was married, you know that uh, that was that was a good thing to do, and uh, so we see a little bit of his personality there. We we know he had a mother-in-law that's seen in the Gospels, right? So that means he was, he was married. Uh, you don't usually think of apostles being married, do we? But there we have that case. Um, God shapes him into a leader. God first of all has to choose him, be able to do that. So He chooses him out of. A whole bunch of other people, you would have thought, why is this guy made a leader? Why didn't he go to some of the really intelligent rabbis and the scribes? Why didn't he use those guys? Those guys knew the scripture upside down, inside out, you know, they had been to seminary, and Peter was from Galilee, spoke with a hick language or accent. You know, and he's um, a fisherman. You know, it's, it's, uh, Jesus uses him. He picks him, um, and as well, he summoned those twelve. He did the same thing with all those guys. Um, Peter asked a lot of questions, didn't he? Well, potential leaders ask questions. They want to know, and they initiate dialogue. They get things started. Peter did that a lot. And they want to know things. They want they want to know things quick. Whenever you start doing that, you kind of can get your foot in the mouth disease, and uh, as Peter often did, right? Um, but he made things happen. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Uh, but that's how God develops leaders. And uh, of course, all of these apostles were, but he was kind of a leader of leaders. And so we recognize also with Peter his humanness. Who can't identify with Peter? I've talked to a lot of people and say, I identify with Peter a lot. And it may not be in everything, but they're talking about how human he was, you know, and of course sometimes getting in a little bit of trouble. He had a lot of zeal. He was definitely uh, zealous for the Lord. Second to none. Did he love the Lord? No doubt. Uh, but he had denied him too. How easy that that can be, you know. Kind of blew a chance to really stand up there and be a witness. 
But I think we can learn a lot of lessons from Peter because he learned what humility was. And he teaches on it in this little letter. You remember, (laughs) he teaches on submission, humility, sacrifice, grace, love, courage, faith. Some of those things he was weak on before, and now the Lord is, through the, the Spirit of God, is making those things now come through as reflecting Christ in his life. Uh, he was a fisherman, but really what would you call him? A fisherman of men. Uh, a leader of the church uh, in the first 12 chapters of Acts until you start getting to Paul. And Paul, it's from there on, he takes takes it and runs with it. And then he takes it to the Gentiles. But the first one to open that door up is actually Peter. Um, in, in Acts one fifteen. Peter mentioned really quick here at uh, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said brethren the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out and became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, no one dwell in it, let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us, going to be somebody that was with Jesus all that time, beginning with the baptism of John, going, going all the way back to that time, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they, they need to go all the way back, somebody that had been with them, traveling with them, and then seen his resurrection to, to take that place as the twelfth apostle. So who's in charge here that gets that started? That's Peter, right off the bat, isn't it? And then a little short uh, time after that, uh, he's a spokesman for the church uh, on that uh, Pentecost, and he preached that tremendously powerful sermon. That was that was Peter there. Three thousand souls were converted. Uh, then he had a companion, I believe, in chapter three, where um, it was John. It's Peter and John. And uh, they wind up preaching the Word. And there was a lame man in chapter 3 that they healed. Remember him? Peter and John are doing that. And then he was um, actually... He defied the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. And that's where he says, we must obey God rather than men. We're going to continue to preach. Uh, then there was a man by the name of Simon Magus who was a fraud. He was a charlatan. He's the one who wanted to really buy the Holy Spirit. You know, he saw how the power was in people like Peter, you know, the apostles, and he wanted that same thing. And anyway, Peter had to take action there. Also, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, chapter five of Acts. Uh, he had to bring on the news there of what uh, what had happened. 
Uh, he healed uh, a- Aeneas. He raised Dorcas uh, from the dead. Um, in Acts 9, uh, he took the uh, gospel to the Gentiles, chapter 10, namely Cornelius. And he had that vision from God. So he provided also probably most of the resource material to Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So even though that name is not Peter there, now Matthew was an apostle, Luke wasn't an apostle, but he wrote a Gospel too. He was very rich in gathering historical information and he was able to get around the apostles and put together in a great way. And of course, John being an apostle wrote. So you have two guys that were apostles too or were not, but they got their information from apostles. And so Mark was kind of like a right-hand man of Peter in that sense. As, uh, he wrote that. So he played a key role, a very key role in the church, didn't he? Peter, big time. And he wrote two magnificent epistles. And as we get to uh, open up this first chapter and just uh, have a few minutes left, we'll actually go on. Peter, an apostle. We have that of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. <laughs> That's what everything is about. So we don't want to just skip and say, hey, this is all about Peter. It's not. Because it's all about Jesus Christ. Peter gets to tell us some things about Jesus Christ and how He lives in us and how we can live our lives with Christ living in us today when we have to go through um, in a world where we are aliens and strangers. And that's who he's writing to there, literal aliens, in that they, uh, they're, they're scattered, they're foreigners, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout. It tells you the name of these places. Peter was writing to a pretty widely scattered audience, although it's basically what modern Turkey would be. Persecution had a lot to do with that. Some of them were moving around and going about. Uh, maybe some of it was because of the diaspora. Um, may not always be the direct influence of that. That's whenever the Jews have been spread out all over the world. And of course, they are in this sense. It's not necessarily has to be Jewish Christians here. Some say that that also can be um, Gentile Christians. Whatever they are, the Christians are going to encounter a lot of uh, persecution. Uh, Andrew McLaren. Is it Alexander McLaren or Andrew McLaren? Alexander McLaren, I think. Uh, wrote this. That's pretty good. Seed in a basket is not in the right place. But if it's sown in a field, it'll be waving weed in a month or two. Seed in a basket's not going to do anything, is it? What do you do with seed? You scatter it, right? Put it out there. Well, that's what God always does with the church. He's scatters them out there. And he did it right there in the book of Acts. You can see it in the first few chapters. They're all hanging around in Jerusalem. He goes, you go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And hey, they were all hanging around and the best place to be is where you're together with other Christians. And it's pretty safe. It's real comfortable there. And God says, no, no, no. 
I told you, you need to be moving on. Here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so, yeah, so a little bit of persecution even came on, you know, first of all, from the Jews right there in Jerusalem. And so they, they did move out a little bit further and went out a little bit further. And God says, come on, come on. It's like the little eaglets. You know, the mama eagle has to get her young to start flying and pushes them off the cliff. You know. <laughs> And uh, so we're people that have been scattered. God has to take His people and, and put them put them out there. And so we've been scattered right here in Jeff City. So uh, we wave out there like the wheat. <laughs> Diaspora, Diaspora, scattered. Mind you, see, that's what it kind of means. Um, in James one one. He uses the um, same thing here. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Diaspora, dispersed, scattered, everywhere. Aliens, they reside, they live, they dwell as aliens, just like aliens, strangers, uh, alien, dispossessed from land, in a different territory uh, where they seem like they don't belong. Temporary residents. Not there forever. Foreigners. Ambassadors. Ambassadors go to different countries to represent one country and be a liaison between that country and this country. And they're not re- it's not really their home, but they're there. Um, they're like pilgrims. Not residing permanently in a place. It's because they're only going to be here for a while. We're pilgrims. Pilgrims on a journey. We, uh, this is really not our home, is it? Mind you of a song. <laughs> this is really not our home. Um, we are a supernatural culture who happen to live within a culture. But we're supernatural. What God has done with us. Look where He's put us. We don't fit in sometimes. And sometimes we're probably considered as outcast because we just don't fit in with some of their beliefs. We're not esteemed necessarily by the world because we're Christians. But that's okay. Because we're a supernatural culture they don't understand, but we have a message that we would like for them to get in on and the good news, right? Anyway, that's who this is written to, these people that are spread out all over there in, in Turkey. And the next word is the chosen. All we're going to do is just give a little taste here. And I know you're saying, ah, oh, this is a setup. Dennis, you're always talking about the elect and the predestined and a foreknowledge. And it's not that I try to force that. It wasn't that, hey, let's go to a book that talks about election. Well, we started on uh, you know reformed theology, and we did uh, systematic theology, and we hit on those issues a lot. And yeah, that we embrace those doctrines really because they're there. But the thing is, I don't know of a book in the Bible that you're not going to have something about that kind of teaching. You can't miss it once you start. You don't even have to look for it; it just glaringly comes up again. You go. Well, let's skip that one. No. 
I have to wonder, do people skip that? When you use the word elect, people start getting really nervous if they don't know that doctrine or they don't like it. And don't ever feel threatened by that doctrine. By the way, that is a word that God uses for His people. Uh, we, could, we could do a study on it, but I'm not going to do it. How many times does He call us the elect? It's all over the place. Why are we afraid to say that? Well, it's going to offend somebody. The Bible does offend people. What do we do with things that are kind of strange? Well, we live in a culture that makes an impact on the church and there are a lot of man-centered things that come into the church and then we realize that these are tremendous doctrines. And Peter can't wait to say it right there because they need to hear about that, not because he's going to teach some strange doctrine. He says, hey, i got something new here I want to show you. Peter knew exactly what it was to be chosen. Peter was a nobody. You remember where Peter came? Where, how did he ever get to follow Jesus? You think he was following him up and down the beach, and he finally, you know, he shook him and said, "I want to come with you." And he said, "No, get away." You know, no. <laughs> yeah. um, Andrew brought him, and you know, this that wasn't by accident how he met all those. But he was one chosen by Jesus to do that. Matter of fact, Jesus in John fifteen fifteen says, "You did not choose me." I chose you. You did not choose me, right? So, it's not a threatening doctrine. It is the ground for confidence and comfort in our Christian lives. And without that doctrine, without the doctrine of sovereignty of God, if He never revealed that, or if I didn't know that, I could live my Christian life scared. But it's grounded in who He is and what He's about rather than grounded in my own faithfulness. Because I know I fail. But I'm glad it is in Him. So being an alien is an earthly relationship and being chosen is a what? A heavenly relationship. Um, election is a, is a theological plunge of profoundly... Deep, deep proportions. And there's no way that we can understand all the depth of this because we are finite, sinful creatures trying to understand an infinite, holy, glorious, perfect God. But yet when He uses these words, I will never hold back just because it might offend somebody. If that word is there, I'm going to read it. I'm going to say it because it's a beautiful word. And Peter wanted to make sure that they knew that they were chosen. It's written right at the first. It's not hidden. A.W. Pink has uh, something to say about election. (laughs) He has a lot of things to say about election. He said that this is the most loathed and reviled doctrine by the majority of those claiming to be believers. No man ever originated this doctrine. It is like the doctrine of eternal punishment. People don't like that. The Trinity. Hard to explain. The Incarnation. Now those are things all Christians believe in, but it's rather hard to explain, isn't it? Try to explain the Trinity in its fullness. It conflicts 
with the carnal mind. People trip over the fact that Jesus was God came as a baby to a virgin. I mean, that is rather incredible. But we just just believe it, don't we? But to the carnal mind, resurrection. Are you kidding me? But that's one of the big that's the very foundation of what we believe. If there's no resurrection, then we're all wasting our time. What are we doing here on a Wednesday night? But yet, there are a lot of people who have difficulty with resurrection, right? Um, to an, it's repugnant to an unregenerate heart. So, when you understand the doctrine of election, it starts changing things. It starts breaking down pride like you never had pride broken down before. When the first time that you truly understood what election was, i got a feeling everybody here has a story on that one. You really found out you're saying, then you're saying, if that's, if that's really what you're saying, at the moment you might even be mad, but you're, if you're saying that, that means even, even my, my own faith that I have really doesn't, it didn't do that either. You're meaning, I didn't do anything. That's correct. That's what grace is about. And you like to take credit for something and you're realizing that you were a horrible sinner. (laughs) There was nothing there about you. We all like to make ourselves look better than what it is and what He does is He humbles us and boom, chops us down and there we are down to the ground. Laid out. And that's when we are at our best in the sense that He is now getting through to us to a truth that is um, uh, marvelous because we really mean it. You are Lord of everything. I am depending on you totally because I can't do it. I have no capabilities. And that's where the Lord wants us at. It changes that. It changes our worship. Has your worship changed? Corporately and individually, when you think about this grand God as big as He is, how about joy? Oh, you take a much bigger joy in this knowing in the fullness and realizing that you were in His mind and in relationship with Him before you were ever born, before the world was created. He was in, you were in His mind. Changes our behavior. The word eclect us, and we're going to. Close out here in a quick moment. Who are chosen, eclectos. That's easy to know where the word elect came from, doesn't it? It means to choose out. (laughs) It means to call out, to pick out, to select. Um, God's will selects some for salvation. God's plan is to choose out a people of His own possession and he's not a victim of human choice. He's not up there wringing his hands saying, Oh, I hope he can come to me. I hope he does it. I see that he's going to, but I'm, I hope he, hope he does. Um, that's putting it on people uh, to make eternal decisions that they can't. They have nothing in them to do that. So God selects some for His purpose. And there are scattered aliens. 
what Peter's saying. They're scattered, they're aliens, and they are chosen. That is comforting to know. If you're from Pontius and you've seen some Roman soldiers coming into the city and you've seen some people being taken off and some people's houses are being burned, and he says, but you've been chosen. You've been chosen by God. Would you think that that's comforting to know? God's purpose here are certain and they're very gracious. And that's incredible as Peter, the way that he is in the first verse is bringing out something I think is so tremendous. And He starts his letter off with a God-centered explanation of the exiles, of, of the aliens. And uh, I think we'll probably leave off there. We'll probably get into the, the next word, the foreknowledge of God. But you see the Trinity in verse 2. He starts off, okay, you are comforted people because look what God did. He elected you and you are wrapped up in the Trinity. God the Father, looking way back. The Holy Spirit who regenerates you and sanctifies you, sets you apart. And so now that you can obey Jesus Christ because of what His blood shed on the cross did. And so think of all the things that is being set up and the doctrine that is involved here in this letter uh, that uh, the people really needed desperately. And um, somebody would say, well, you know, God choosing a people. God choosing a people. Well, why doesn't He choose everybody? That's not fair. And we always have to remember, well, how depraved, how wicked are people anyway? They, will, they have to learn the total depravity of themselves. How fair is it? Well, God is very different than the way that man thinks. Man has standards. Man thinks he has the standard of fairness and justice. And God's ways are not like man's ways and all those passages. Divine justice is an attribute of God. He's infinite. He's perfect in Himself, for Himself, from Himself, um, by Himself. And He is righteous and He is good. James Usher said this, the source of God's justice is His own free will and nothing else. For whatsoever He wills is just and because He wills it. Therefore it is just, not because it is just, therefore He wills it, It's because He's the one that declares it that way. It's not because it is just. Anything outside of Him, (laughs) He is the standard of just. But if He wants to be that way... So the source of justice from God is His own free will and nothing else. It all comes from Him. It's all about Him. So justice is not even the issue. Fairness is not, not the issue. We don't want justice... He owes us nothing. But that's what people will say. Well, why doesn't He choose other ones then? What is He doing with them? That's not fair. And then all you have to do is start thinking about how great God is. How terribly evil we are. Why would He save anybody? But there's a reason. 
He has people that he's bringing together of his own possession. Is that encouraging? You're a part of it. You trust in that sacrifice. So anyway, that's how Peter starts. Uh, I didn't think we would get two verses done, but it was worth a try. It was a good try. I tried. I really tried. both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But if you you really realize what that chosen is about, it should humble you to the point of realizing I don't deserve to be here at all. All those great chosen apostles and all those great chosen guys that go through you're really (laughs) chosen. Well, Peter is definitely quite the example, isn't it? All the way from where he started, where the Lord brought him, and then he went to the crucifixion. He was crucified too. Well, a whole bunch of really pleasant stuff.